This is Corinne Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. All right, you all, I have interview number two with Dr. Brené Brown, and we are talking about worthiness and parenting and boundaries in terms of who do you share your story with. So, There's really some tangible examples that my invitation for you is to collect that negative insight and how can you apply it to your life. And I will circle back with you after the interview to talk about my key learnings. Brene, hello and welcome back. Hi, I'm so glad to be with you. It's great to have you back. Thank you. So this topic of worthiness, I mean, it just, it seems to come up quite a bit in my life, whether it's with listeners or with the clients that I coach or with the swimming families that I'm around. So, you know, how, why do we get so stuck in this feeling of not being worthy? Uh, I think, I think it comes up a lot for all of us because in, in my work, I have found it to be central. I think that this idea that we're enough um, this idea that we're worthy of love and belonging, that we're worthy of joy, um, I think is central to our well-being and I think probably underpins every single struggle that we have, you know, from mental health issues, addiction, family issues, relationship, disconnection. I mean, I think often what's at the core of these is this issue of worthiness. Am I enough? And, and why don't we feel enough? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because having done this research for the last 11 years, um, one of the things I talk about often is that if you, let me back up a little bit and say this, I think love and belonging, um, to love other people, to feel lovable, to have a sense of belonging, that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, I think love and belonging are irreducible needs of men, women, and children. I think we are hardwired for connection and belonging. We are hardwired for love. And I think when those things are not present in our lives, there is suffering. And so if you kind of crudely took the people who I've interviewed over the last decade plus and you divided them into two groups, people who felt a strong sense of love and belonging and people who really struggled around those issues, there was only one variable that separated those two groups. Um, and it's kind of as simple and complicated as this. Men and women who feel a strong sense of love and belonging simply believe they're worthy of love and belonging. They don't make more money. They're not more beautiful. They don't have more, you know, they don't have fewer divorces or fewer struggles with addiction or fewer trauma histories. They have just cultivated this belief in themselves that they are worthy of love and belonging. Not, you know, their vulnerabilities and perfections don't stop them from being worthy. And so 
I think when we look at a topic as, as deep and broad as worthiness, what we have to understand about it is that worthiness does not have prerequisites. I think the way that most of us live, like when you're talking about your coaching clients or your swimming families, um, when I'm talking about you know my own life, you know the lives of my friends, the people I've interviewed, what you hear a lot of, you know, in sometimes subtle and not subtle ways is, well, I'm kind of worthy, but man, I'd be really worthy if I lost 20 pounds, or oh, I'd be really worthy if I made partner, or if my husband didn't leave, or if my son, you know, stayed in rehab, or if we could keep our house, or if my daughter, you know, made the 200 butterfly, you know, I mean. We have this list of prerequisites for worthiness, and some of them are handed to us by our families of origin. Some of us, you know, we we put together on our own. But I think the first step in understanding what gets in the way is for us to get really honest about the list of prerequisites that we we have in front of us. And, and that's a great tool, and when you you go through and figure out what are the list of prerequisites. Is that when you try to see what's true and what's false? What happens after you've had that list? Well, it's the list itself is really tough because, you know, having studied shame, you know, is one of my primary the primary emotions that I study. When we're talking about the prerequisites prerequisites for worthiness, what we're often talking about are our shame triggers, you know? Mm-hmm. And people people hate talking about shame. I mean, you know, people have one of two reactions when I bring up shame. Number one is, um, I have no idea what you're talking about, but you're not talking about me. And number two is, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I don't want to talk about it. You know, and, you know, the things I can tell you very quickly, if you want to know what the opposite of worthiness is, the opposite of worthiness is shame. Mm-hmm. And so you can't really have a conversation about worthiness unless you're willing to talk about shame. And the thing I say about it, you know, as my quick one, two, three that kind of opens people up to hearing is number one, we all have it. You know, shame is the most universal human emotion that we experience. In fact, a lot of sociologists and psychologists call shame the master emotion. The only people who don't experience shame are actually people who have no capacity for connection or empathy. So the only people who don't experience shame are people who, you know, really struggle with psychopathology, like sociopathology. So, you know, we all have it. Number two, nobody wants to talk about it. And the important one is number three, the less we talk about it, the more we have it. So shame is is that voice, I call them the gremlins, that drives this big message of never good enough. You know, never rich enough, thin enough, beautiful mm-hmm. enough, popular enough, promoted enough, loved enough, appreciated enough, you know. Um, so I think when we talk about what is this prerequisite list, what is it that's getting in the way of our worthiness, what we're really talking about is what are the things in our lives that keep us feeling small? What are the things in our lives that make us feel unlovable? You know, is it something that we've done or failed to do? Is it something about our appearance? You know, for women, universally, appearance is an issue. Mm -hmm. For men, social status, money, job, number one. 
And so what we have to think about is when we're talking about these prerequisites for worthiness, this is not just like a list that you jot down like, you know, milk, eggs, that kind of thing. It's a, it's a, it's a hefty reflection list. And then I think once we get that down, once we have that list, what we start thinking about is how did these things get on there? How, where did they come from? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. Yeah. And so it sounds like with the the conditioning that we get, these these lists that we have, it would, could come from maybe the way we were parented. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, you must do this to be a good girl. You must do this. You, I mean, some of my clients will have, have these beliefs. Their prerequisite list is, I will be worthy as long as I do for other people. Oh, God, yes. Are those women? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, and so some of it sounds like it's from there. And then the other place would also be just um, the conditioning we have, kind of watching how the world works. Because I know for me as a kid going, well, if my family doesn't have it together here, this must be um, how it works. And, and me putting it together. I will be worthy if I have this, this, and this. Maybe either it's from the media. Oh, absolutely. Now, absolutely. Are there other ways that people, you found in your research, that people have come up with the, these prerequisite triggers? I think, you know, the, the strongest ones are, I think, normally prerequisites for worthiness. And we have to be really careful about that. I mean, like, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm working on a book right now around parenting and it's a really parenting and sh- you know parenting and shame go hand in hand. In fact, um, the number one predictor of whether kids will struggle with shame and feelings of worthiness is parenting style. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference between, for example, shame and guilt. You know, shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Um, We have some of the first longitudinal studies looking at whether kids who were raised that who have more, use more shame self-talk, like I'm stupid, I'm bad, um, versus guilt-prone kids, and the outcomes are really not good. Um, Shame-prone Shame-prone adults and kids are, you know, shame-proneness is highly correlated with addiction, depression, eating disorders, suicide, bullying, aggression, silence. And so the outcomes are not good. Guilt-proneness, where we're able to separate who we are from our behaviors, is negatively correlated with those outcomes, meaning the more we're willing to say, you know, I'm a good person, but this was a really bad choice. Mm-hmm. Um less likely it is that we will end up struggling with those outcomes. And so parenting is this really, really huge piece of worthiness. Um, the messages that we heard, and like I can tell you that, you know, I've never been a parent and not a shame researcher because I'm a 12-year-old <laughs> and a 6-year-old. And so I've been a shame researcher ever since I, you know, before I got pregnant and with Ellen, my oldest. But I am still, I know in many ways, passing down some prerequisites for worthiness that I do not want to pass down. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. She um, is in her first year of middle school, and 
you know, for us in Texas, it's elementary through fifth and then sixth, seventh, eighth. And, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, think, you know, just small things like, you know, saying things like, come on, we can't be late. You know, it's, it's so inappropriate to be late or, you know, I'll tell her not to care what her friends think, yet she'll see me like totally going nuts. I'm like, I can't do this. What will people think if I show up like this? Or <laughs> what will people think if the yard looks like this? I mean, like, so it's not as easy as, it's not as easy as, you know, tell your child, you know, reaffirm their self-worth, separate their choices from their behaviors. It's also about how we behave and mm-hmm. how they see us behaving. Mm-hmm. You know, girls who watch their mother starving to death um, are, you know, are girls who watch their mothers making fun of other people's weight mm-hmm. are going to grow up with a prerequisite of worthiness around thinness. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, un- you can't not make that happen. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we as the mothers are such huge teachers for our children. That's the whole, you know, and so I think, I think those prerequisites for worthiness really, I think you nailed it, to be honest, Corinne. I think it's family of origin and I think it's media. Mm-hmm. I think those are the two biggest influences that I have seen. Well, you know, and I mean, so I had my tiger mom who had really good intentions, but um, I, was to- I was told that, you know, you have to do this, this, and this. And... Um, to be good, it was to be good enough, right? Right. And um, and then I got there, and I'm like, okay, but it's it never felt like I ever arrived. And then I think for me, the other side was just the the media images, and also you know thinking that um, I would finally measure up if I could measure up to this TV show, right? Yeah. Which wasn't real. Right. And and as a parent, not feeling worthy because you know I wasn't Carol Brady with this blended family that was so perfect. Right. And um, and then finally realizing, oh, my gosh, what am I thinking? Carol Brady, where, where are the children's, you know, biological parents that aren't there? I think they're right. both dead. And she has Alice. Their house is always clean. Carol doesn't seem to, you know, she doesn't have a job outside the home. And the husband seems to be not very stressed from his job. And the biggest issue is Marsha getting her, her nose hit <laughs> with the football. <laughs> and I'm comparing That's my life, right? Yeah. This is this is my worthiness of if I'm a good enough parent was from right. this TV show. And finally, I had to let that go and go, okay, I have a blended family. You know, how can I do the best that I can do instead of trying to measure up to a TV show that wasn't real? No, I mean, it's absolutely. And we do that every day. I mean, and, and in ways that are just, yeah, I mean, I do that, you know, we didn't, did we talk about something's got to give last mm-hmm. time? No, I don't think we did. Okay, do you know the movie? Yes. Okay. Do you remember the house in the movie that Diane Keaton's Hampton's house or wherever it was? Her is that? Yeah, I'm talking about the Diane Keaton Jack Nicholson movie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you yes. know which one I'm talking yes. about? Yes. Okay. So everyone I know that saw that movie, which was a great movie, just coveted Diane Keaton's house in that movie, her character's house. It was like in the Hamptons or something, and it was just perfect. And I remember coming home after that movie thinking, 
you know, and she's a playwright, and she writes in the Hamptons and goes into the city for her plays. And I remember coming home and thinking, look at this house. Just look at it. I mean, what what is my life? What what is what have I done? I mean, and then I read an article about that house in architect an architectural digest. Mm-hmm. It's not even a house. It's like a movie set that they. I mean. They basically choreographed everything down to the color of linen pants that Jack Nicholson was wearing, to the wall colors and what books were being shown on the book bookshelf. <laughs> they flew the books in from a bookstore um, in New York. It cost about hundreds of thousands of dollars, apparently, to fly all these books in and then sorted them on the bookshelf based on the scene so they would coordinate with the clothing and the lighting. <laughs> you know, it's like we compare ourselves to things that don't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, and, when, and you know, the thing is, you know, when you talked about, you know, never good enough, when you're comparing yourself to an ideal that really doesn't exist in real life, you never get there. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. Did you, have you seen the movie, The Joneses? The Joneses? No. With Demi Moore? No. You got to watch that movie. Is it good? Oh, it it's really good because it goes on this premise. And I don't want to tell you too much about it because then it'll kind of, you'll, you know, but um, it's the idea of this family and keeping up with the Joneses. Oh, right? got it. And um, yeah, so watch it and then let me know what you think. But I just watched it the other night and it's, and again, it's this feeling of, oh, well, they have this and they have this happy life. So then if I have this, and it was a very interesting way that the marketing went about within the movie. And so just watch it. I really oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I love stuff like that. I'll probably end up showing it in my classes. So so here, here's like, um, okay, so we understand. So once you get to, okay, I have this list to, to determine whether I'm good enough. And then you go through and where does it come from? And you, okay, now you even understand, okay, this is what I was taught from my parents, right? To get love, I have to do this. I have to achieve. I have to take care of everybody else. I have to put everybody else first. And then what? Because you realize, well, I'm n- nothing I do will ever get me that love that I'm so coveting from my parents that I'm actually good enough. Well, what's really powerful is how much healing comes in identifying just kind of what those prerequisites are. And then once we identify what the prerequisites are, it's time to do some like some work. It's time to say, you know, to reality check those. I mean, to say, how real is this? I mean, for example, you know, I'll be, you know, I'll be worthy. I'll feel like I'm enough when I have a house like Diane Keaton's in that movie. Mm-hmm. Or when I wake up every morning and my house is really clean and the kids are doing great. Well, that's just never going to happen. <laughs> Wait, I, yesterday, was yesterday Sunday? Yes. Yeah, walking to take communion at church and a Lego fell out of my shirt. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. The top of a minifigure. Um, that's just not ever going to happen. And so what we start to do is we start to, the first thing we do is once we make this list is we look at it and we think, okay, these are the prerequisites for worthiness. These are the shame triggers. This is the hard stuff. Number two, let's reality check those. How realistic is it? Because one of the things that we feel like is we feel like it's just me. You know, it's just me. I'm the only one who believes that, you know, unless I have all these things going for me, I'm not enough. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then once we start to reality check it, we realize, oh my God, it's me and Corinne. Oh, it's me, Corinne, and every woman in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Then after we reality check it, and this this is the really counterintuitive part, is we start to reach out and tell our story. Mm-hmm. We start to reach out. I mean, one of the things I say, and I think you've got the DVD, one of the things I talk about in the DVD is that our worthiness lives inside our story. Mm-hmm. And our choices are to own that story and say, this is who I am. I am late for church. My roots look really bad because I did cancel my appointment to get my hair highlighted. And this is true last week because Charlie was hiding underneath the bar one morning before school. It was our first week of school last week. And I was squatting down talking to him about why he should come out. And I stood up and just cut the top of my head um, on the corner of the bar. So I had to cancel my appointment to get my hair highlighted because I knew it would burn like hell when they, you know, started mm-hmm. to cover my gray, which is real. Um, you know, I get to church, my hair looks like really funky, a Lego falls out of my shirt. <laughs> These are my stories. And when we, you know, we do one of two things, we own them and tell them and share them with people who've earned the right to hear them. Mm-hmm. Or we stand outside of our story, wishing that it wasn't our story and hustling for our worthiness, proving, perfecting, performing, pleasing. We stand outside of our story and, you know, shuck and jive. Mm-hmm. And those are the two choices. So it's about what are the triggers? But how do I reality check them? Reach out and tell our story, and ask for what we need and talk about what we want. And doesn't it take less energy just to own our story? Oh God, yeah. Right. I mean, it's I'm been our life running away from it for sure. Worried about I mean, who saw the Lego fall out of your blouse versus telling everybody that's listening, that you had a Lego fall out of your blouse. Right. And, and it's not just that. It's, it's their heart. You know, they're, you know, that's, you know, that's a funny story and people might be listening saying, well, you know, I've got a really hard story about trauma mm-hmm. or I've got a really difficult story about being a survivor of this, or I've got a really hard story that my husband's left me, you know, for my son's basketball coach, you know, and that's not a funny, my Lego fell out of my shirt at church story. Mm-hmm. Those are also stories that need to be told. And need to be shared. And there's huge healing in sharing those stories. You know, the deal with that is that we have to share them with people who've earned the right to hear them. And that's so important because it's not about just telling anybody. No. It's not about just telling anyone. It's about, you know, I have a lot of friends. I've been doing this work for a lot of time. um, But there are still only two or three people in my life who I would call and say, I'm in deep shame about something, or, you know, I'm really, I'm in the, you know, I'll call it the shame shit spiral. Mm-hmm. I'm in it. I'm going down. I need to talk about what just happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell a story in The Gifts of Imperfection. I tell a couple of a couple stories about reaching out. Um, one of the stories I tell in The Gifts of Imperfection is that... Uh, I, when the Sex and the City movie first came out, mm-hmm. the first day it opened, I went with my girlfriend, Laura, and we got to the movie, and we were so excited, and of course, surrounded by, you know, a jillion other middle-aged women waiting for this movie to come out, um, and it was the first one, and it was very fun, and um, I took my, I think I had my iPhone or with me or something, and I took a picture of it, and I put it up on my blog with a little thing that said, um, played hooky and went to go see the movie today, lots of fun. Well, a couple of months later, I get an email from a woman who said, 
hey, love your website, um, beautiful graphics. Um, I'd love to know who does your work because I would like to contact the agency to do mine. Um, I love everything on it, except, of course, that picture of you and your friend at the movies. I would never put such a, ba- a poor quality photo on my blog. But then again, I'm a professional photographer. <laughs> and so I read this email, and one of the things that happens um, that I've learned, one of the things that men and women who have high levels of shame resilience, who really do well with worthiness, one of the things that they have in common, and this is super interesting to me, is that they physically know what their symptoms are of shame. Meaning when shame happens, when it kind of washes over us, it knocks us off our feet. Like we get hijacked by the limbic system. We get hijacked by the part of our brain that has no language, that can't, you know, tell us what to do in a rational way. And so men and women who have a lot of shame resilience know physically what shame feels like for them. And so I know for me that when, I, when something shaming happens, um, my mouth gets dry, I lose track of it, you know, I, um, time slows down, my armpits tingle, like I have this real physical thing. My face gets red, my heart beats fast. So I read this email and like I just feel shame washing over me. But I, but I know what's happening. And so I'm so mad. So I, fi- I fire off this email that says, I'm glad you like the site. Um, just checked out your work. If you don't want to put bad pictures on the internet, I would rethink posting yours. <laughs> but I don't hit send. And I'm like, that's really crappy. So I just write another one. I'm like, okay, thanks for the email. Um, if you're going to send a shitty email to someone, you should at least get your grammar right. There is contractual for, you know, they are not possessive, T-H-E-I-R, there. I'm like, oh, equally as mean. So I'm like, I have this, my little saying, it's my worthiness shame saying, which is when you're in shame, don't do anything, say anything, text anything, or email anything. Because we're in pain when that happens. So I go for a walk. I grab my tennis shoes. I put a baseball hat on. I'm like, I got to run. So I just go out the door. I grab my phone. I'm running. I stop at the corner. I call my friend Laura. And I'm like, you're not even going to believe what just someone just sent me this email. And I told her about the email. And we start talking about it. And I'm feeling better and better. And we had this long conversation. And she says, well, what do you think you should do and what, what, what would be the brave thing to do? And I finally say, well, my best self would really probably delete it and just blow it off and never do anything. And she goes, oh, my God, this is sharing your story. Like, this is shame resilience. Isn't this exactly what you say to do? Like, reach out to someone, tell your story. And it was, it's such an example that here I am, the shame researcher. I've been doing the work at that point for 10 years. It just happened two years ago. Um, but we either, we either own our story and share it with someone and say, my God, I just got this email that really hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. Or we do something that exacerbates our shame, which is totally, you know, sending a mean email. And so I think, 
we have to figure out who we can share our stories with. And so what did you do? Did you ever email that woman nope. back? I talked to Laura about it. I, I kept walking for like 40 more minutes, and she stayed with me on the phone the whole time, which was awesome. And we talked about it. And we talked about how she would respond and how I responded and what's brave for her is different than what's brave for me. And we talked about the whole thing. And by the time I got back, it was a great, like, here's a friend who loves me for my strengths and struggles. Mm-hmm. She knows all of me, you know. And compared to someone who just doesn't know me at all and was just being critical and, you know, I just came home and deleted it and didn't think about it again until I told the story in the book. Mm-hmm. But that's the power of sharing our story. Because we can share it with someone who deserves to, you know, who's earned the right to hear it and someone who believes in our wor- our worthiness. It's very powerful. Because it helps you grow as a person. Yeah, and it does something amazing for your friendships. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean... My friend Laura that I'm talking about in the story, she and I really, you know, we really, I think, share these stories with each other all the time. She'll text and be like, I'm in a terrible place. Mm -hmm. And so how, now that you, you know, you're becoming more and more public out there. Oh, God, yeah. Okay. And, And then you have a blog. And how do you put the lines? How do you put the boundaries? really hard question because I struggle with it every day. In fact, I just did a panel at Blogger about this. Um, you know, it's it's always evolving. It's always, I'm always thinking about, I'm, you know, people, it's weird, Corinne, because people who don't, people always find this very surprising about me, but I'm a majorly private person and I'm an introvert Mm -hmm. and yeah you know I can do you know I talk in front of you know 5,000 people that doesn't bother me at all but if you put me in a cocktail party with Mm -hmm. 50 people I didn't know Mm -hmm. I would want to die like I just um, I'm also very private I'm most comfortable comfortable at home with my friends and my kids and my husband Um, and so I my rule, I think everyone has to have their own line and their own rule. And I think that, I think the advice that I give people is just be clear about what your line is and why it's your line. Like for me, I'll share some things that are vulnerable in my life, but I don't share anything that's intimate in my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to blog about a fight that I had with Steve. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to blog. Um, I've got, my daughter's 12, so she'll read Anything that I post about her, anything that I'm writing in the new book, because it's a parenting book, um, she'll vet anything about her that goes to public, into the public. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, those are her stories, mm-hmm. not mine. You know, and so, so I'm just, and I think, I think I just try to keep a balance of staying connected with the people who read my stuff and being honest about who I am and being transparent. Mm-hmm. But also the more intimate moments are for me, mm-hmm. you know, and that's really important. And plus, you know, I think social media can be very dangerous in the sense that, you know, if I'm having a picnic with my family, I don't want to get out my phone and tweet 
look at my picnic with my family because then I'm on my phone thinking about Twitter instead of being present with my kids and my husband. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes I'll share things like that if it's funny or something's happening, but I, I, I try to really be mindful of it. Mm-hmm. What about you? Um, you know, I think it just, it, I constantly ask myself, what is it that I want to share? Um, again, with the same thing, my husband's very, very private. I'm in, and I'm, I'm an introvert, but I am an extrovert. I like, I like to be around big groups of people and I don't have a problem with being around 200 kids or, you know, a bunch of swim families and I can give talks. I can do all of that, but I don't like cocktail parties. You know, and I, right. I, my, my preference is I went out with a girlfriend on Saturday night or Friday night and we talked for six hours. I love that. Yeah. Me you know, too. I love, love, love that. And she's one of my dearest, oldest friends. Um, but, uh, so, you know, but to go and just do idle chit chat at a little party. No, sometimes, yeah, I, that's me. you know, so I get clear about why it is that I'm going, but, um, some, cause sometimes I have this image of, well, this is what you're supposed to do. Right. Right. And I'm like, Oh, but I hate that. Um, so, and then, and I don't blog too much. So, but I've, you know, trying to figure out what I'm willing to put out there. Sometimes I make the mistake about not being with my family and throwing something up on Facebook, you know, that we're doing. Um, it was great. We just went to Montana for a couple of weeks. And the thing that was great about that is there wasn't great cell phone or internet service. Yeah. So it really forced me to be more connected with my family. Amen. You know, so, um, I, I, I don't know. I don't have like a direct answer. I just, when I'm on the air, I, I, I tell stories that would be okay to tell. Nothing yeah. that would ever embarrass my children. Right. right? And, and I'm really conscientious of that because I tend to tell stories a lot, whether it's of my kids, other people that I've coached, you know, especially um, swimmers. And um, so I'm constantly telling stories. And so I'm, confidentiality is something that's really important because I want people to feel safe. So I, I think of it in that terms, but I don't have like strict guidelines and I'm constantly trying to think about, you know, how much, because in my town I do live kind of a more public persona, you know, and how much do I want people to know and how much not. But I still try, I mean, I, in the end, my goal is to be authentic and, but I really, I used to believe being authentic mean I had to tell everybody. Right. And, um, I think from you and just from other stuff, I realized that it's about telling people that have earned the right to hear it. So I think that's true. And I think that, you know, in fact, um, one of the things that was interesting to me, I thought the same thing about authenticity for a long time until I started writing The Gifts of Imperfection and really had to drill down to what is authenticity, what's the definition. And, you know, that's why I was really purposely put a lot of the definitions into The Gifts of Imperfection from the work because we throw around words like authenticity and love and belonging, but it's not, they're not as helpful personally for me unless we have some kind of like working definition of them because it's just, they're all kind of hallmarky words. But mm-hmm. um, one of the things I found in my research is that a lot of people actually really protect themselves mm-hmm. from authenticity by oversharing. Like, so you don't, you may not really know somebody because, you know, that it's that person who tells you everything about everything but it's almost as a way to protect themselves because they don't have to talk about how they feel about it. They're just constantly reporting. Oh. Yeah, and so I think, I think you know, that's why I don't have a hard and fast rule because I think I'm always, I don't know, I'm always 
trying to be mindful about where I am and am I doing things for the right reason. Mm -hmm. And what's the intent? What's the intent? Total. Well, you know, it's interesting because growing up as a kid, I had so much shame because um, I grew up in an alcoholic home that was abusive and stuff. And I had this huge story. But so for me, I mean, I've had to go through my own transformation because I learned how to make it all look really good. Right. Or at least that was, that's what I thought. Who knows what I really made it look like. But so my, my role was to make it look better than it was. And I went through that for a long time, even through college and, um, coming into adulthood and going into my thirties, it was like, okay, well, I wasn't less worthy because I went through these experiences, you know, and it's, but it's interesting because still some of my core beliefs get stuck on that. And I'm like, oh, there's that core belief again. And I know where it came from. It came from the fact that I grew up, you know, in my childhood. Um, but realizing that a lot of people had, you know, difficult families to live in and difficult households to live in. And so one of the things that I learned was that when I was willing to open that up, I actually got more connected with other people. Yes. And um, at the same time, I've kind of dropped my story of, oh, well, you know, I'm a, I'm an ACOA kid and there was a lot of abuse in the home, right? It was like, okay, well, here's, this is part of my journey, but here's also how I was able to grow as a person. I wouldn't, you know, want to go through it again. Right. But here are the things and, you know, and then I look at my children's lives and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, my daughter's biggest problem is yesterday I wouldn't let her watch TV after she came home from a camping trip. <laughs> and I was considered a very mean mom. Right. But uh, I'm like, okay, well, if that's what you want to believe, that's fine. <laughs> no, it's true, though. And I think, you know, I think the story that you're telling about you, how you grew up is very similar to, it sounds like, how my mom grew up. And I don't, like, when we talk about owning our stories and sharing them, like, so she was the head of everything, the head of the drill team, the head mm-hmm. of the, you know, every club, the smartest girl, and, you know, and she dressed impeccably and, and and basically that was, you know, that was a real shield for her because she had an alcoholic mother and it was, you know, the 1950s and it was Ozzie and Harriet and Leave it to Beaver and everything was perfect and her mom, you know, my grandmother was divorced and um, it, it was, you know, and as it turns out, you know, she wasn't even, people weren't even allowed to go to her house. Mm-hmm. And so I know that when my mom started to share that story with me when I was in my early 20s, it was so meaningful for me as she started to own her story, I, pieces came together for me of my story, you Mm -hmm. know, of how my parents put together a marriage and a family that was not going to be like, you know, that, that was going to be different and, and where a lot of the pressures came from. And, you know, I think... There's a quote in The Gifts of Imperfection that I think is so true, and I really try to live by it. Um, and it's, you know, owning our story and loving ourselves through that process is the bravest thing we'll ever do. Mm-hmm. There's no one out there, not a single person listening, that does not have a story that would break your heart. You know, this is, you know, life is wonderful. I love life. Um, there's a lot of joy in my life, but nobody rides for free. Mm-hmm. We all come, you know, we all have hard things that have happened, that will happen, that are happening. And the more willing we are to surround ourselves with people that can not only hold space, they can hold space for our story. 
and can say, you know, I don't, our fear of sharing our story is that we will be defined by that single story and crushed under the weight of it. Mm-hmm. That you will never be able to be anything more than that kid who was raised in that house. Mm-hmm. And then that will be used to explain everything that you do that someone doesn't like. Mm-hmm. You know, or that I'll never be more than someone who's really struggled with this. Or Susie will never be more than, you know, whatever happened to her. And John, you know, well, his dad committed suicide and that's, you know, that's his story. And, you know, none of us are a single story. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, and so the more we can own the story and say, yeah, that's a part of who I am. That's a part of my history. That's a part of my story. That's a part of who I, you know, of what I am. But it's a really tiny part of a really complex story. Mm-hmm. Well, and isn't it also when you can finally own that, then you're not spending all this energy trying to run away from it or to cover God. it up? Yeah, right. for sure. And then, then you use that as a way to blame everything else that happens in your life. No question. No question. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's a process. And I, I, I like to use the word, it's a mesh. Everything's just messed, to, meshed together. You know, I love cause, that. Because you can clean up certain parts, but everything all just spills over, right? I mean, we don't overeat because we don't know enough about food. We're overeating no. because of something we feel about ourselves. Maybe it's because we don't feel worthy. You know, that t- tends to happen with my clients a lot. They don't feel worthy or they, you know, that there's not enough or, and so it just all meshes over. It's not just, oh, let's just clean up this food issue. And, right. you know, it's like when you clean up the food, food issue, you're actually cleaning up a lot about your life, your relationships with people, your relationships with self, you know, maybe your money. I mean, just everything. It's not just one compact thing. No, I agree a hundred percent. And it's a hundred percent. So I have a question because I used to have a huge struggle with this maybe about 10 years ago and I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was Marianne Williamson, but I remember somebody had said, you know, you are worthy just because you were born. And, uh, and maybe it wasn't her. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, I, I think worthiness is a birthright. So just the fact that you are born, you are worthy. You made, you made it through the gene pool of being able to be alive. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're all worthy of love and belonging. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, make, we can make choices um, in our lives. When we make cho- choices in our lives where we hurt other people and we become, we're dangerous or, you know, even emotionally dangerous, then I think we should be held accountable. Mm-hmm. But, and you know, and I'm big on accountability. Like, <laughs> I don't put up with a lot of BS about a lot of stuff at all. You know, I mean, like, I think because of what I talk about, people assume I'm the trophy for everybody, 500 gold stars, let everybody off the hook person. Well, mm-hmm. I'm against all those things, actually. And so I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty, pretty serious accountability person. When someone makes choices take away the rights of other people to be safe and to experience joy and to know love and belonging. There needs to be accountability and boundaries and that, mm-hmm. and, and that needs to happen, but it doesn't change the fact that that person is, you know, worthy of love and belonging. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, I mean, you know, if you went into a prison system, 
And we know this from shame work that's been done in the criminal justice system. If you go into a prison system of violent offenders, people who have raped and killed, mm-hmm. and you think to yourself, none of these people are worthy of love or belonging. What you're missing is that the violence they perpetrated happened because they already believed that about themselves. They already believed what about themselves? That they weren't worthy of love or belonging. Oh. Shame, there's no higher correlation than there is between shame and violence. Mm-hmm. If we could shame people into making better choices, we wouldn't have the stuff we have right now. Shame is far more likely to produce destructive and violent behaviors than it is to cure them. Mm-hmm. You know, you tell people they're worthless. You tell people they're nothing. You tell people they don't deserve anything good. They have nothing left to lose. And that's when people become very dangerous. You know, my mother is Korean, and um, she was the second-born child. They had five children. And uh, the first four were girls. And she was born during the, you know, 1940. So she went through the Korean War. And, yeah. and she was born to a relatively wealthy family. But um, her mother, and I didn't know this until three or five years ago, because I don't speak Korean, but her mother had told her that she was worthless and all the girls were worthless and all they were going to do was take from the family. And it's interesting because when she shared that story with me, it made me understand why she there's so much self-righteousness to her. And it also, I understood just kind of the choices that she made and the marriage that she was involved with, right? Um, because when you got when you have your mother telling you your whole life that you yeah. are worthless, and there's a part of you like I think there's a part of her that was the the rebel that was like, well, screw you, let me show you, right? Right. And then there's a part of her that still believed that, and so she put herself in situations that replicated that situation, and um, it was just really really powerful for me to go, oh my gosh, and like you with your mom, I was able to put stuff together, and then understand even. Um, you know, because there was a lot of shaming in my childhood and why my mom did that because she did what she knew, you know. Well, absolutely. So, and, 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 but, and it's interesting because I still have these core beliefs that circle around and around. And even though, um, but one of the things that I have, so here I'll just say it, I have this because I've pretty much told everybody at this point, I've come to this realization, Brene, in the last couple of years that I have this core belief that I'm a loser, Right. And it's so funny now because I just, I really just own it when I tell my friends, when I first told my friends this, they're like, what? How can you think you're a loser? And, you know, look at what you've accomplished. Look at what you've done. I'm like, oh, no, no, I have this belief. You know, look at your husband. No, I still have this belief. I'm a loser. And so when bad stuff happens, I'm like, oh, see, of course it happened. I'm a loser. And, uh, and I'm, I'm working through it. And, um, and I feel fine to put it out there publicly as we're talking about this. But, um, this summer, a, f- a girlfriend of mine who's also a coach came out to visit with me and um, she started to mock me because I was like, because, you know, she's, I had this loser belief. I was really grieving it still. And, and I said something had happened. And she's like, oh, that happened because you're a loser, right? And we were just kind of laughing about it. But that laughter also helped kind of free it a little bit, loosen it up. I mean, it's still kind of there. And when things don't go right, I'm like, oh, it's because of this. And then I have to do the work on all of that stuff. Um but I realize I'm like, I have so much evidence in my life that I'm not a loser. But, you know, it, it, would, it was an easy explanation as a kid of how could I be born into this family? How could I have gone through this? How could I have gone through that? And then I realized that my core belief has also stopped me 
so many times of getting what it was that I want because I made it so much more difficult for myself personally. And um, so it's, but it's interesting, but I have, by identifying it, I have, I feel, maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me if I'm wrong, that I've empowered myself more because I see it. And then I look at what is really true about that and what is not true. No, I, th- I think it's super powerful. And I have, and I thought it was just me, which is a book basically about shame resilience mm-hmm. and how we built that. I have a whole section on knowing laughter about when we share something, when we share a mer- narrative or a message like that with someone we really care about, we reach out and we're like, oh my God, I've got this gremlin that just keeps saying, you're a loser, you're a loser. And we mm-hmm. can laugh about it with each other. That that kind of knowing laughter is a prerequisite for healing shame. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I mean, I, I think, you know, I've got a core message that constantly plagues me of, I'm lazy. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I mean, I know. I felt like laughing when you said that yours of your loser. Like, I do. I had this, like, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> I know. It's like, I, you know, it's like, I'm a lot of things. That's not one of them. <laughs> yeah, we're all trying to figure out how you really do it. <laughs> well, but I'm telling you, I had this message and like I'll be really exhausted and I won't take a nap because it'll get right into that gremlin of you're lazy mm-hmm. um, and yeah and so and sometimes I'll, t- I'll tell Steve I'm like oh I didn't get very much done today and I just I watched like two episodes of Law and Order and I was just he's like let me guess you're super lazy he's like watching you makes me tired <laughs> and um, and I'll and we do we kind of laugh about it and stuff. But the thing is, and this, I know we're wrapping up, and this is yeah. probably a great place to wrap up. But um, shame, like love and belonging and trust, happens in the part of the brain. The brain that has no control over language, and so shame thrives. Oh, it loves it because. We, if we don't speak it, it stays, and it and it and it and it just grows exponentially. It like burrows in and metastasizes. So shame hates having words wrapped around it. It hates you laughing about this with your friend. It hates me telling you and all your listeners that I have this gremlin about being lazy. <laughs> I mean, it just and you know where did that come from? That came from that came from ha- having a German American family where don't get sick, you don't miss work, you don't take naps, you don't say no, mm-hmm. you do it. Mm-hmm. You do it perfectly, and you do it on time, and you don't ever stop until you drop. Mm-hmm. And then when you drop, you're being lazy. Give yourself CPR and get back up and go. <laughs> don't inconvenience someone else about CPR, give it to yourself. Um, but when, so when we tell these stories, and we put words around it, and we share it, shame can't hold on. And so 80% of shame resilience work is recognizing what is the prerequisite, what is that gremlin, and what is, and speaking it, what can, who can I tell, who can I talk to this about? You know, and so when you're talking about putting together that list, if you looked on your prerequisite for worthiness list, there would probably be a lot of things related to that gremlin. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be as easy as like, you know, be a winner, mm-hmm. but it could be excel at everything, be liked, you know, take care of other people. That's how that would, you know, for me, the lazy thing shows up on my list is, you know, don't, don't ever stop. 
And so it just doesn't work. And so when you take a look at this and you have somebody to tell, is that when the shift of worthiness happens? Like, cause Absolutely. You want someone, you know, you want, I, I always say you want the stretch mark friend. Mm-hmm. You want the friend that you sat down and shared this with and y'all were laughing about. You want the person who utterly believes in your worthiness. Because mm-hmm. what you don't need reflected back when you share something hard from someone is, wow, you should worry about that. That is kind of a worthiness block for me to, with you. <laughs> you know, that, that you don't want. But I will tell you that I would seriously doubt that your gremlin of loser and my gremlin of lazy have a huge hold on us anymore because by definition, our willingness to talk about it with the umpteen jillion people will listen to this as a download, um, by definition says that we are well on our way. Like when I share shame stories with audiences, when I do lectures or talks, even when I talk about like the TED Talk, um, I'm not going to share something with it so fresh and hard. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not going to do that. Well, that makes sense. Well, Brene, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's been great talking with you again. Well, I've had so much fun, and any time I love it so much, and um, you're a great host and a great interviewer, so whenever you want to talk worthiness, shame, authenticity, courage, I'm here. I love to talk about this. This is one of my favorite <laughs> things. <laughs> Everybody's going probably like, oh, my God. So they're thinking, y'all need to add weird to your list. <laughs> but, already on there. Check. Done. Oh, one more thing, but I don't want to run out of time, yeah. is um, the King's Speech. Have you seen that? No, but we just got it to watch with my daughter. Okay. And we watched it with both of our kids, and one of my daughters has a speech impediment. Um, so we kind of broke the PG-13 rule, but it was okay. Um, but my husband, cause you know, I've been talking about shame a lot. And so he's like, well, this is like kind of the epitome of shame. So watch that and then let me know what you think. But, um, yes. So thank you so much. Good luck with your book and thank um, you. I'll have you back soon. I'd love it. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. So interesting to listen to the show again as who I am in 2021 and somebody who has really cultivated a tremendous amount of self-compassion for herself and for the experience that I've gone through life. So it's really, really fascinating. It shows me how much I've grown and where I was and the stories that I held on to and where I am today. So the thing, my invitation for you is we're always growing, we're evolving. We can learn. These are learnable skill sets. Maybe you may not have compassion or maybe you're recognizing so much shame or you listen to Brene and I talk about parenting and you're beating yourself up. Please don't. That's not compassionate. We can learn and we can get better. I was recently doing a dare to lead training with some clients and they were in leadership positions and all of a sudden this realization of the things that they had done 10 years ago and they had so much shame about it. The good news is he was in the room willing to learn and grow and he's going to be a better leader and he could see the things that he did the best he could with the limited skills he had and that he could grow. So that's my invitation for you is if you hear something and you go, wow, I'm not doing that. And then you notice it triggers a shame trigger in you and you think it's just me. I listened to Corinne and Brene talk about their parenting. 
and I'm so bad. No, my invitation is you're not bad. Take a look at what the key learnings are and how you can cultivate the growth that you want to be. That's in line with the parent that you want to be. That's in line with the leader that you want to be. That's in line with the relationships that you want to be a part of. Beating ourselves up is not the pathway to it. It's about looking at key learnings, being curious, being compassionate with ourselves. That is the pathway. So as I talk about this, that time I called my mom a tiger mom and my mom, I mean, she would be, I guess, the definition of what we would think a tiger mom, but I have so much compassion for her because as I shared later in the show about her own upbringing that I didn't even know about until this century, I can't remember exactly when it was. And I was pretty stunned because she always seemed so strong and stoic and can do. And I have learned a lot of who I am is based on that with her. But my mom was always doing the best she could. It wasn't being a tiger mom because she was trying to punish me. She wanted me to be safe in this world, right? She wanted me to be okay. She wanted me to really enjoy my life. And I invite you to think about that when you look back at the stories of your life, what are your key learnings, right? My mom did the best that she could. And there were some great things and there were some flaws and same thing with me and my parenting. There's some great things and there's some flaws. There's a lot of flaws. And I always have to think about it. It's not a destination. It's a continual evolution. And where do I want to go from here? It's a choice I get to make. So one of the key learnings that I had from this show back when I interviewed Brene about it was really understanding that concept of you share your story with someone who's earned the right to hear your story. That is so huge. And one of the things that just about, I didn't hear it. I don't remember it from when I interviewed her from the previous times I've listened to it. But when Brene talked about lots of people protecting themselves from authenticity by oversharing, right? And she said, you may not really know somebody because that person tells you everything about everything, but it's almost a way to protect themselves because they don't have to talk about how they feel about it. They're just constantly reporting. I think about that. Like I thought authenticity was like sharing, you know, in the weeds details of what happened to me so I can be in my victim mode instead of how am I feeling and allowing somebody to hold the space for me? They didn't need to fix it. And then did they earn the right to hear it? Right? So when I was so busy protecting myself, I wasn't paying attention. Is this person on the receiving end? Somebody who's earned the right to hear it. And the more that I've gone inward and been willing to get clear about how do I want to show up? What do I want to share? What do I not want to share? Who are the people who've earned the right to hear my story? The more connection and growth. So sharing your story with somebody who's earned the right to hear it, huge. And really think about it. And you're going to make mistakes. (laughs) You're going to crash and burn at times, right? Somebody will, I hope not, but realistically, there may be some betrayal or somebody will show you more about who they really are when they share your story, when they don't have permission. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have done it or that you were wrong. It just is a key learning. And please, please look at it as a key learning because it's going to give you more insight and more framework about who do you share your story with. And it doesn't have to be a huge list. Like Brene talked about three people. 
So who are the people who've earned the right to hear your story? And one other thing that I do with my clients is making sure that you're hearing your own story. That's really, really important. The other thing that I want to point out from the show was when she talks about people who have shame resilience, and that means the ability to fall down and get back up. And that's been the premise of the show since, oh, I don't know, probably 2006. And I know I clarified it when I had Simon Sinek on in 2009. So it's been a long time coming. So shame resilience is that ability to fall down and get back up and not get stuck in shame, but to be able to move through it. And Brene's research has shown that those who have a high sense of worthiness or have shame resilience, they understand their shame symptoms. They know what shame feels like. And that's really important because it's your body's way of giving you feedback of what am I feeling right now? As she goes through it, there's shame. And when we feel shame, how do you want to act? And Brene and that with that blogging situation and how she wanted to respond to that photographer and that example that how she shared the letter that she had typed up, but did not send. That is an example of gladiating when you're like, Oh, you're trying to take me down. I'm taking you down. Let me show you, right? That's an exact example. She just didn't hit send. So it didn't go out there. And she continued to process it with somebody who's earned the right to hear her story. Somebody who sees her worthiness even when she may not be able to see it in that moment, because she's in so much pain, who believes in her. So those are other indicators of who are the people who've earned the right to hear your story. And so often I spend so much time coaching on the people who haven't earned the right to hear my client's stories, who have a lot of opinions about who they should be and who they shouldn't be. And my clients need to, and we all need to distinguish, is that somebody who has earned the right to hear my story? Is that somebody who is on my team? Is that somebody who I even enjoy being around? <laughs> right? Because oftentimes the people that can trigger us aren't even people who know us or are part of our lives, like the commenter and Brene's blog. So thinking about that and getting to know what your shame symptoms are. And I remember when I was a young bonus parent. I like to call myself a bonus parent when I was a young bonus parent. And when I get into these really stressful situations, typically I was really, really tired, exhausted, overworked. And then there'd be some sort of conflict that was going on and I would start to shake. And it was weird. My body was like out of control. And I was like, what is happening to my body? (laughs) This shouldn't be happening. Shut it down. Cause I was really good at shutting down emotions. My body just overrode it because I was feeling all this emotions. And now I know that for me, that is extreme shame, right? And I wasn't paying attention to the earlier symptoms. So one of the things about feelings is I think a lot about illness. So nowadays, because I'm more in tune with my body, not perfect, but I'm more in tune with my body. I can, when I'm sick, I start to notice like, oh, I'm starting to get, not that I've been sick in a year, but because of COVID, but (laughs) because, you know, we're so masked and don't want to get sick, but I would notice like, oh, I'm a little bit more tired or my throat is starting to get a little scratchy. I just start to notice those little symptoms ahead of time. So when you can pay attention to those small moments before, when I was disconnected from my body. I would be here in my office working late, late, late at night, 
trying to figure out why was this so hard and what was wrong with me and why couldn't I figure this out and why was it taking so long and just getting into the self-beating and self-hatred. And then a few days later realizing like, oh, I really was sick. I really did have the flu. That's an example of being disconnected from our emotions. But that was an example using the metaphor of illness. But we want to be connected to our emotions. Like the more that we can have an emotional literacy, the ability for us to be able to move through things. Emotions are data points. It's your body giving you information and feedback. It does not mean you're bad or you're broken or there's something wrong with you. Especially as we are a year through this global pandemic and mental health crisis is at an even higher crisis level that's going on because we've had all the suppressed emotions and, you know, and a lot of different emotions coming up. So when you can have an understanding of what emotions are, you can move through it. You're more resilient. I always say to my clients who live in like snowy countries or parts of the world, I'm like, so you're more weather resilient than I am because I live in California and I grew up in California. I wouldn't know what to do with snow or how to dig my car out. Like that would be such a, you know, I would probably shut down. But my clients who live in those very cold, harsh climates, they know how to plan for that, right? It's not the drama that it would be for me. That's the equivalent of when you understand emotions, which is all learnable. We practice it. We check in and we ask ourselves, what am I feeling? We start to learn how to identify what that feeling is and be able to label it. And then you're able to move through it so much quicker. Well, not quicker than that. Oh, you're feeling shame. And then it goes away. There's no magic wand. But because you're not searching in your database for what's this feeling, you know, another example is Brene has that rule of when she's in shame, don't type, don't text, don't email, right? Do not respond. So she has that already decided ahead of time. So she doesn't get into behaviors that she will regret later. And so she's decided that. So when we have those indicators, that is what helps us to not create situations where later we have more regret and more shame. So my friend, worthiness, you are worthy because you are here. Take an inventory of your prerequisites for worthiness. Really reflect on it. It's going to be painful. Take a look at it. Where did it come from? And really question what is really true. Some people who may have told you that these prerequisites, like my mom saying, you need to be perfect. You need to get perfect grades. Her intention wasn't to belittle me or make me small. She did that because that was her way that she believed would help me rise up. Okay. When we know better, let's do better. And let's start with doing better with ourselves. So we have to give to others. As you leave today, remember, these are learnable skill sets. And when you understand shame, you can get to worthiness instead of trying to outrun it or stuff it down. Now, here's the thing. It's lovely to read a book or listen to a podcast. What I found to be the most effective way of being able to apply this work into your life is by doing it together, doing it with somebody who's earned the right to hear your story, doing it in a place that is safe where you can fully show up and really learn these skills in your bones and have a committed place for you to practice. Sign up for my mailing list so you can receive notification when opportunities open so you can work on becoming shame resilient, developing emotional literacy, 
and really owning your worthiness. I'm smiling big for you. Hey, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you'll love my weekly emails. I know you're thinking, Corinne, really? Do I want another email in my overflowing inbox? Yes, you do. Yippee, skippy, you do. These are short, they're sweet. On Fridays, I send out the Friday podcast. It's a great reminder that there's a new show and it comes straight into your inbox of the latest episode. Awesome. You click on it, you go straight because we all need reminders. We have busy full lives. And then on Sundays, I have my Sunday love column. And these are emails I write from the heart. They're filled with love. We need more love. We all do, myself included. These are short emails where you get a quick takeaway so you can incorporate this into your life. Because people often want to know what to do and how to do it. And maybe sometimes it's a story that you get, or there's like one time I wrote about the 10 ways to practice gratitude. And that became such a great tool when one of the readers was struggling in the middle of the night, because it can be a scary place in our brains in the middle of the night. And she remembered the email that I sent about 10 ways to practice gratitude. And she was able to practice gratitude and fall back asleep. And that was an awesome lesson for her to incorporate into her life. Go to the show notes and there's a link in the show notes where you can sign up and get these emails in your box. Never been so wild.